Um, so first of all, what we're doing at the Design Council in terms of healthy placemaking, um, there are a few foundations to that work which I just want to talk about um, initially. One is um, inequality or what we're trying to aim for, which is health equity. So we already know that people in deprived communities die earlier than people who live in richer areas. Um, and what we see on the graph here is that during the 10-year period from 2003 to 2013, um, people increasingly lived longer lives during that period, but the gap between uh, rich and poor for both men and women stayed wide. It stayed pretty much the same during the whole of that 10-year period. So although people are living longer lives, um, there is still this gulf between rich and poor um, that we need to tackle. And because deprived communities live in deprived places, there's this very strong link between um, health deprivation and, uh, and the physical environment. So that gives us a certain driver and impetus to tackle inequality and deprivation in a place-based way in order to achieve a fairer society and to um, help people lead full and healthy and long lives, no matter where they are, what circumstances they've grown up in or where they live. Um, and the really sobering point, really, in this um, bit of data is the gap in healthy life expectancy. So this is what we all want, really, not to live an extremely long life, but to live for a long time in good health. And the difference between rich and poor in terms of living a healthy life is about 20 years. It's a really long time. Um, and 20 years to be living in poor health, feeling miserable, physically, mentally, emotionally, whatever, um, is, is not what we aspire to. Um, and so the question for us is, what role can the built environment play in this? We don't hold all the answers, but we can play our part, and that's what I'm interested in. Um, so this is a bit of a quiz. Um, of all of those factors that contribute to your health outcomes, how well you are, and ultimately when you die, um, some of them in the built environment we um, play a part in, and other things we don't play a part in. So let's just focus a minute on what we might influence and what we might not influence. Um, so there's the pie chart, and there are the headings. So if we start with the biggest, 40%, which of those factors do you think plays the biggest role in uh, contributing? It's not just a premature death, but it's also to health outcomes overall. Healthcare? Social circumstances, okay. Any other? Behaviours. It is behavioural patterns um, account for the biggest proportion. If we move on to the next one, 30%. What's the next biggest factor that influences your, your date of death? Social. Environment. It's the one that we all can't do anything about, your genes. Um, then moving on to things that we can do something about, what comes next? It must be social circumstances, yep. Um, so there's two remaining. 
I did hear healthcare some time ago, um, and that accounts for 10%. And then environmental exposure, 5%, and the reference um, is at the bottom there. Um, so what we can learn from this is that all that money that goes into the NHS and all that hard work um, involved in treating health problems only accounts for about 10% of the total outcome for a human being in a Western society. Um, and behavioural patterns and environmental exposure, which we do influence to an extent in the way that we shape places, account for 45% in total. So it's quite a big chunk. Just a few other stats quickly before we move on to what we might do about all of this. Um, and these are some of the figures that we use at the Design Council. Um, and I want to just touch briefly on social isolation. So um, living in a relatively isolated way um, increases a person's risk of dying early by 29%. And that social and emotional dimension is really important for physical and mental health. A lot flows from having good social ties and, and positive social contact. Um, so I think it's, it's important to remind ourselves of that in the built environment where we're used to thinking about physical things and spaces and movements and um, and actually we're, we're creating the environment for, for social interaction too. Um, the, the scale of mental illnesses also formed 23% of the um, UK's national disease burden. So that's the, the losses, the costs to the country, um, socially and economically, of um, a particular illness or group of illnesses. Um, and then a, fact, a figure, 28% um, of children in England um, being overweight or obese, clearly that's too high. Um, and diet and physical activity, which we might influence in the built environment, both play a role in that. So what can we do about it? Well, at the Design Council, we've looked at a lot of the evidence, um, and there's a growing body of evidence really linking health with place. And uh, it's complex and it's ever-changing, but what it is all pointing towards, and we've tried to simplify what's coming out of the evidence into something uh, very petite and memorable, which is this. So for us, this, these are the, the four functions that we think can be designed in to the places that people use in order to maximise their health and reduce risks of preventable disease. And because we're trying particularly to target deprived communities and to tackle health inequalities, we need to think about these functions not as places that we create that people can choose to visit or choose to take part in. We're talking about making these functions an integral part of people's everyday lives, where they live, where they shop, um, where they go to school, where they go to work, where they want to go to have fun, so that it's not an optional extra that affluent or educated people choose, which can be the reality with some interventions. Um, and when you see it there on the screen, it's really obvious. Physical activity, access to healthy food, having positive social contact and contact with nature, this is what we're trying to design into the places that people use as a matter of course in their lives. And there's some discussions at the moment about whether a fifth function should be added there relating to living in a pollution-free environment, um, air quality and good ventilation indoors as, as part of that. 
What does it mean overall um, on a kind of neighbourhood-wide level? It's about compact, mixed-use, well-connected, walkable environments. And in a nutshell, it's this. So if someone says, well, what is a healthy place? How can you create a healthy place? I would say it's a compact, mixed-use, walkable neighbourhood with leafy streets and great parks. And obviously there's more to it than that, but that's the nutshell answer. And obviously, this is nothing new. This is good urbanism as we already know it. So it's not rocket science. There's no technological advances or... Um, or anything new that we're saying here. It's just good urbanism. And perhaps the, the driver of reducing preventable disease and improving people's health might help us shift towards good urbanism becoming standard rather than something that actually we find is implemented in quite a patchy way when construction projects are delivered or new housing or regeneration um, schemes take place. Um, and we have um, collected examples of uh, places and projects from around the UK that appear to be beneficial in terms of people's health. So I'll just quickly run through those. Um, in terms of access to healthy food, the number one way to bring fresh uh, produce and healthy prepared food direct to everyone living in a place of all, uh, all means and ages and backgrounds is through street markets. It's, it's a really kind of basic solution. Um, so this gives another reason to support those markets and to shape places in a way that, uh, that supports street markets by making them accessible and within reach of people's homes. Another example is in Leicester, where the discovery of Richard III's remains prompted uh, the creation of a, a new museum and public realm works in the city centre. And part of uh, the city council's objective was to better showcase the historic assets of the city and to create um, a more livable and healthier environment for, um, for residents and for visitors. So they have chosen to... Uh, take uh, carriageway space away from cars and reallocate it for um, people cycling, which means that more people cycle. They have converted um, car parks into um, public squares. And this gives a glimpse of a space that is really working for a big range of people with different uh, abilities and different needs because for all people, like uh, like I said earlier on, everyone from all backgrounds, all ages, um, all um, states of health needs those four functions. And so people uh, of more limited ability also need to be able to get out there, have the social contact, have contact with nature, walk, walk to the shops. So we see some, some nice examples in Leicester around the city centre. In Hackney, they have taken quite a strategic approach to improving conditions for people moving around on foot and by bike, um, which in practice results in a big number of pretty small interventions. But cumulatively, um, it's uh, quite a sizable shift, and they have the highest rate of cycling to work in the country, the highest rate of women cycling to work, 
uh, in the country, which is great news, and a, a real commitment to uh, making it easy to get about on foot and by bike. Also some soft initiatives in Hackney like um, play streets where interestingly not just the children and parents come out onto the street when uh, cars are banned every week or fortnight or, or month but also the residents who don't have children come out and have a cup of tea and have a chat with their neighbours. So it's really achieving a lot for, for social contact as well as physical activity for the kids. And in Bradford, where the city council was seeking to boost the local retail economy and um, bring together diverse communities in the city, they created this wonderful uh, mirror pool with lots of features, well-designed, well-executed, also with a, a big um, events programme. And because of what they decided to build, people go there on foot, they interact, they have a nice time, they have contact with water as well as trees, they go there on their bikes, they have a cuddle, and this stuff is really good for your physical and mental health. And not everyone <laughs> has easy access to this, and so this is part of the, the mission, to make doing this easier for all types of people because it's so good for you. And for this little guy, um, it wasn't a warm day when we sent our photographer there, but the place was so appealing that uh, he just needed to go for it. However, we also have a lot of experience creating places that are not very conducive to health. And when we look at the contrast between those case studies and some other environments that we might be familiar with, uh, it's, uh, it's a bit of a sobering story. And we all know places like this that are being uh, created around the country. So for us, the question is why? What is stopping us from uh, creating places that really support people's health and that help tackle preventable disease? What is it that leads us to create places like this instead? Um, so we're working with an organisation called Social Change UK to explore that question and we're doing a research project with them at the moment. You may have um, seen or taken part in a survey um, to look at what stops built environment professionals from creating healthier places. Um, and we're looking forward to uh, reporting on the findings from that research in the summer. And perhaps we'll come back to this topic at the end of um, this event, um, if, if you guys have thoughts on uh, the barriers and solutions to creating healthy places. <laughs>